Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism, coming to you from 2SER on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device, wherever in the world you are, via podcast. My name's Olivia Rosenman. Coming up, Australian media organisations are doing a pretty dismal job at representing our country's diverse population. We talk about why this is a problem and how it could be addressed. A magazine in the US is making headlines for its incisive political commentary and cutting-edge current affairs coverage. The name of the magazine might surprise you. And we're going to examine the media coverage of the death of cartoonist Bill Lake. Joining me in the studio from the Saturday paper is Alex McKinnon and from Huffington Post and FBI, Emily Jane Smith. Hey there. And on the line from Rockhampton is Amy McGuire, a freelance journalist. Hi, Amy. Hi. Earlier this month, the public editor for the New York Times wrote a pretty damning piece on the diversity of the newsroom. Titled The Declining Fortunes of Women at the Times, the piece revealed that women have skidded down the power structure since Jill Abramson was dismissed as executive editor three years ago, with fewer females leading big news departments and fewer coming up in the pipeline. Late last year, in the aftermath of the US election and the panic about how the press got it so wrong, Liz Bate made public some statistics on the newsroom's ethnic diversity, including that only two of the 20-plus reporters who covered the presidential campaign were black, none were Latino or Asian, all six of the newly named White House team are white, and the Metro Desk has only three Latinos among its 42 reporters in a city with the second largest Hispanic population in the country. In Australia, it seems like our media is not doing much better. Last year, PricewaterhouseCoopers' annual report on the Australian media found that the average media employee is a white male in his mid to late 20s who lives in Sydney's inner west or eastern suburbs. The report found that 82.7% of the national entertainment and media workforce are monolingual, speaking only English at home. In radio, the homogeneity of on-air talent is even more pronounced, with 75% male, white and over 35 Liz Spade revealed some pretty damning information here, but while her bosses at the New York Times might not really like it, she's definitely committed to shining a light on the issue of diversity. Amy, do you think Australian news organisations should do the same, should make public statistics around the diversity in their newsrooms? I think they definitely should, but I think most Australians would understand that they put the diversity targets and they'll probably fail to meet them because (laughs) we see every day um, just on our TV screens that we've got a really homogenous media that we see. And it's always white, middle class, uh, a lot of men. So I don't think Australians would be very surprised at all because you also look at the content that's being put out. And I think I think we're very ill-served by the Australian media at the moment. So I, I think it'd be great if they did, but I don't think it would make much of a difference because the ABC just recently, I mean, I had statistics about the ABC only recently. And I mean, I don't think anything's really going to change in that regard. So it's not much of a surprise to me, even if they continue to release diversity targets. What exactly are we missing out on, Emily, by not having the diversity of Australia reflected in our media? It comes down to uh, the voices that tell the stories about different minorities within Australia. And obviously, it's always an advantage if the voice telling those stories reflect what's being told. And at the moment you see, you know, majority white journalists telling the stories about different uh, groups around Australia. And while that's not necessarily a overall negative thing, it's definitely not the best outcome that we could get. You know, 
ABC's, I think, at least acknowledged the parts of their uh, organisation could increase diversity. But, you know, news organisations like Fairfax, News Corp, you know, all the commercial channels aren't really acknowledging the benefits that diversity could have to their journalism and storytelling. And do you think, as well as benefiting the storytelling, Mm. uh, do you think that maybe improving those, that diversity would be a wise business decision for media organisations to make? I mean, yeah, absolutely. It would reflect Australia's population and therefore you would think that, you know, if you see yourself reflected on screen or in the paper or on the internet, that you're more likely to consume that content. So therefore it is a good business decision. I think the problem is, is that decision makers perceive it as a hard thing to implement. So it's not people's, a lot of people's priority, which is a real shame. Alex, Emily hit the nail on the head there. I think she said that leaders do find it a hard thing to implement. Any ideas at how how the heads of big media organisations could diversify their workforces? I've I've worked in a few newsrooms. Uh, Most of them uh, are very white. There are very few people of colour. I think it it, it is incumbent on uh, media organisations and especially the leaders in media organisations to kind of take concrete action to increase... Uh, representation within their workforces. It can't be up to individual journalists who are kind of running up against systemic obstacles. I think as well, occasionally uh, those sort of white middle-class journos have a bit of an obligation to sort of push those boundaries when and where they can. Um, I remember a couple of years ago, it it seemed really weird, but Carl Stefanovic on the Today Show (laughs) weirdly became like the darling of progressive Australia for about two weeks, partly because he wore, you know, he came out saying he'd worn the same uh, suit jacket every day for a year. Mm. Um, And there was also uh, an interview he did on NITV where he was talking about how we need more Aboriginal faces and voices on TV. And I remember especially he said something like, fundamentally, uh, white people are pretty bland. And if you were, you know, Clementine Ford or... Celeste Little or someone like that, you know, the Australian would roast you for weeks for that, whereas Carl Stefanovic can get away with it because he's a, you know, a photogenic white bloke. Mm. Um, I think doing a little bit more of that kind of heavy lifting is probably a good thing to do. Journalism is an industry where unpaid internships and working for free to get a foot in the door are extremely common. Do you think that that maybe contributes to the problem? Could it be that people who are middle class and have parents who are happy to pay for them while they work for free are less likely to to be people that are also, say, recent arrivals in Australia or from more diverse backgrounds, Emily? Absolutely. This is something that I will quite passionately speak about. I know that, for example, and this isn't the only organisation that does this because almost every organisation does it, but Fairfax, for example, has a great internship program. It's run um, during the summer and during the winter, but it's one month full-time. And you can imagine if you have to pay rent and if you're not supported by your parents and if you're, you don't qualify for Centrelink, then that's out of the question unless you're going to work nine to five at Fairfax and then maybe work a bar job. So that immediately rules out uh, anyone who's below a certain 
who owns a certain income or can get that income from somebody else. Uh, and we we kind of we definitely need to address that. And institutions that do have a problem with diversity certainly need to address address that. Whether that's with these internships offering support uh, to people that can't necessarily uh, afford that, they just need to acknowledge it. I think the problem is, sorry, the culture of newsrooms as well, because I find I find diversity quite problematic as well, because it's almost as if you become tokenistic. And I know a lot of Aboriginal journalists find it very hard to operate within mainstream newsrooms because you're operating within a very foreign environment. So I think it's the media as a whole as well. It's not just entry level, but also being able to retain staff. I think it can be a very unsafe and toxic environment, many newsrooms around the country especially if you're reporting on issues that you know are going to hurt your own community. So I think that's another problem and something that gets watched over when they're talking about diversity. Yeah, I think we need to look at other forms of media rather than just contributing to those power structures and just, you know, putting in the odd black follower or the odd uh, Muslim or person of colour. No, absolutely. And I think that something that's interesting to consider is that, uh, you know, a lot of these media organisations have decades of leadership and largely white workforces. Uh, So Alex, I wanted to ask you, the Saturday paper was created in 2014 and it's not burdened with decades of white male leadership. So how is, I don't want, I also don't want to get you fired, Alex, but um, (laughs) uh, how is diversity at the Saturday paper and are you aware of any diversity policies in the paper's recruitment? I'm not. I only started uh, a couple of weeks ago and I I work from home. Uh, They have their offices in Melbourne. So I'm not... uh, super familiar with how they're set up. Off the top of my head, the the editor-in-chief of the Saturday paper, Eric Jensen, is male. The editor of the monthly, Nick Fike, is male, and the company is owned uh, by Maurice Schwartz. Yeah, I, I don't know how much authority I can, I can speak uh, to the organisation because, yeah, like I said, I've only been there for a really short time. Amy, you mentioned ABC before, and you know, definitely, I think I'd agree with you, the the diversity statistics at the ABC aren't amazing, but they probably are better than a lot of other organisations. But, you know, every every so often we hear these rumours circulating that ABC and SBS will be merged. In fact, the outgoing ABC managing director, Mark Scott, publicly canvassed this last year. What impact do you think that would have, Amy, merging those two public broadcasters who might be perhaps two of the most diverse media organisations in the country? I think it'd be really horrible <laughs> because I think um, SBS serves a very separate purpose. Um, and I think even over the past few years, SBS has had a real problem with diversity and becoming even more whitewashed. I know NITV have a lot of non-Aboriginal staff members working there. And at the start, it was a very hard environment um, to be able to merge into SBS. So I think SBS have its own problems. But I think we do need that separate multicultural broadcaster because when you watch SBS, you get so much different content than what's on the ABC and I often find SBS and you know the journeys that it employs often do a lot more you know important stories for people of you know non-mainstream background so I think it would be really bad actually I wouldn't like to see it happen I think it's important we have that separate multicultural broadcaster. So I also want to talk about accents because I'm aware of a debate that's going on in the States about a lack of black accents in the media, particularly in public radio. And in Australia, up until the 50s, only British accents were broadcast. The ABC first permitted distinctly Australian accents in its broadcasts in 1952, in fact. So we've managed to make some progress, but there's such 
diversity now in Australian accents. You've got Indigenous accents, Lebanese Australian accents, Chinese Australian accents, and you certainly rarely hear those on the TV or on radio. Do you think that people need to be able to hear diversity as well as see it, Emily? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, that's reflective of what you hear on the radio. And as well as uh, accents of different backgrounds, even female voices of different pitches, you know, because uh, everyone's kind of told to speak in the same low tone because that's perceived as the authoritative way to speak on the radio and throughout the media. And so I think that applies to racial diversity, ethnicity and also gender as well. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Olivia Rosenman, and I'm speaking to Alex McKinnon, Amy Maguire and Emily Smith. In December last year, a magazine op-ed piece titled Donald Trump is Gaslighting America lit up the internet. Written by Lauren Duca, the piece was about Donald Trump's deceptive and manipulative tactics, and it received more than 1.3 million hits and was shared more than 30,000 times on Twitter alone. It was published in Teen Vogue. The article sparked some surprise reactions from people who weren't expecting to read such a piece in a teen girl's magazine. But people who had been watching the magazine for several months beforehand noted that the piece reflected a larger shift that had been taking place at the magazine since the appointment of a new team, led by 29-year-old Elaine Welteroth as editor and 25-year-old Philip Picardi as digital editorial director. Since May 2016, the team had strongly steered the magazine towards covering politics, feminism, identity and activism. The magazine has covered topics such as the Standing Rock protests, an expose of homophobic tweets posted by Republican politicians, and the use of recreational drugs to treat depression, with an overt liberal perspective and fearless criticism of Donald Trump. In early February, while many U.S. publications were debating the ethics of using the word lie in Trump coverage, Teen Vogue published a piece titled What Donald Trump Lied About This Week. Amy, is it really surprising that young women are interested in politics and current affairs? <laughs> no, I don't think it should be a surprise. And I guess any surprise sort of feels really condescending. And I was just thinking when I was reading about Teen Vogue that I sort of wish I had it when I was growing up because I sort of grew up here in regional Queensland and it was sort of just before, you know, now we use the internet all the time, but I was barely on the internet. And so I felt like I didn't really have that wider knowledge of the world. And I feel like a lot of teenagers today and a lot of young people do. And I'm often just really humbled by the fact that they know so much about the world and they have a healthy interest in it. So I'm not surprised and I'm sort of a bit jealous because I wish there was a resource like Teen Vogue while I was growing up. Absolutely. And I think the fact that Dolly magazine obviously didn't publish the same level of content, but I think it's fascinating that it closed down last year and it sort of seems to suggest that Australian publishers aren't really capitalising on market there. Are there any lessons that the media could learn more broadly from Teen Vogue? Probably that uh, underestimating young people, especially young women, and thinking that just because people are interested in makeup and fashion means that they're airheaded and don't care about politics is a really stupid assumption. Philip Picardi, who you mentioned earlier, pointed out when he, he got a lot of praise that uh, places like Elle and Mary Claire, you know, other fashion magazines have been doing really good political reporting for a really long time. It doesn't kind of reach the really serious political reporters in ties who hang out in Washington, but it reaches their audience, which is exactly what a magazine is supposed to do. 
I think in Washington and especially in Australia as well, we have this idea of politics of, of being just the realm of serious middle-aged men in suits, which it isn't. Politics is for everybody. And I think young people and young women realise that a lot more than the serious middle-aged men do. Gen Z, and that is what we call them apparently, people aged between 18 to 24, that is exactly the market that Teen Vogue serves. Do you think that, Emily, that, that Gen Z is more politically switched on than previous generations were at that age? I don't really know. Um, Gen Z kind of scares me a little bit, and I think that's just because I have so little contact with Gen Z, even the, the label terrifies me. Uh, but quite likely because uh, their exposure or their native digital consumers. So their exposure to social media, you know, Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat is where a lot of Gen Zers are getting their news. So it's no, it's not a surprise that they're um, more politically engaged or know a lot. But I think even the that idea is false because I think... Um, a lot of teenagers are inherently interested in politics and that should be kind of the default instead of assuming that they aren't. Gen Z have in their formative years grown up in a world where we've seen the first black president, where gay marriage has been legalised largely around the world, still not in Australia. (laughs) Um, And, you know, where trans people are portrayed in popular culture, probably not enough, but Mm. more and more. I, I also wonder if Gen Z is perhaps the most liberal generation we've seen so far. Well, I just think from the perspective of, you know, racism and everything like that and sexism, we see a lot of that around. So I don't think we've really I mean I think there's still the same problems in the younger generation it's just that they're a lot more vocal you know there's a lot more opportunity to get your voice out now and I think that's really good because of you know the great tool that the internet is um, and other forms of media but I think we've still got a long way to go I don't think the next generation but at the same time they're being pushed against you know a brick wall as well you know they're inheriting a really bad situation but I think it might be because they're more vocal because we still have the same problems amongst the young generation as previous generations as well. Emily, you mentioned that this generation, Gen Z, live on social media. They're real Mm. digital natives. And I wonder if because of that fact, Ellen Welteroth, the editor of Teen Vogue, she herself has a huge social media following. She has almost 100,000 followers on Twitter. They're completely native to doing everything online, including getting their news online. Might it be Gen Z who are the ones that crack the code and finally work out how news can make money in an age of social media? I think they're going to have to. Otherwise, uh, you know, future journalists aren't going to have jobs. And I think, yeah, I think definitely they will crack the code. And I bloody hope that they do because I see a lot of people struggling at the moment. You looked at me when you said that. (laughs) I did, actually. I'm doing okay. You can't. I'm doing fine. I I look a bit schlubby, but I have, you know, Have you cracked the code, Alex? No, absolutely not. you still got time. Yeah. Yep. All right, you're listening to Fourth Estate. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Olivia Rosenman, and I'm speaking to Alex McKinnon, Amy Maguire, and Emily Smith. Bill Leake, the Australian's editorial cartoonist, died on March the 10th of a suspected heart attack. 
He was 61 years old. In the days following his death, there was quite a lot of media coverage and unsurprisingly, considering how Leek was quite a divisive character, it was pretty divided. Most of the news, especially in Murdoch Press, expounded on Leek's long career and talent as a cartoonist and portrait artist. Many journos shared their stories of how Leek was a near and dear friend. But in response to all the shining portrayals of the man, many other writers were not so willing to forget the recent controversy surrounding one of his cartoons that portrayed a particularly racist depiction of an Indigenous man and his son. And thus was launched an unusual battle of opinions, with newspapers such as The Australian and The Daily Telly claiming that Leek was hounded to death, a victim of lefty scum who can't take a joke, and a casualty of 18C, which both papers have a pretty obvious agenda against. Other writers pointed out that Leek had a long history of cartoons that just repeated The Australian's talking points and often exploited minorities for a laugh. Alex, how do you view the idea that Leek was hounded to death by opponents of that cartoon? Are the News Corp papers guilty of exploiting his death to further their agenda on 18C? I mean, on Bill Leek's death, the, the first thing you have to know about him was that he drank like a fish for years and smoked, you know, a mountain's worth of ciggies. So uh, that probably was the primary cause. Also, I, I don't really buy the idea that you know, the whole 18C debate says oh, if, you, if you're offended by something, you just can't take a joke and you should brush it off. And then in the same breath, you say, Bill Leak was literally hounded to death by people who said nasty things about him. I, I don't think the Australian are being as cynical as, as thinking, we're going to use this guy's death to get more clicks and sell more papers. It, it definitely kind of worked out that way. They just have this genuine ideological obsession with, with 18C uh, and Bill Leak was kind of one of their flag waivers. It was apparent that many of the journos writing on Leek had a pretty significant conflict of interest because he was their friend. Amy, do you think that those people should have just not written about him at all after his death? Yeah, definitely. It was so excessive and they sort of used it, you know, their personal relationship with Bill Leek to drown out, you know, the really valid criticism of him, particularly the hurt he caused so many people, particularly Aboriginal people. And I just don't really care what they think about him. I mean, I don't, you know, most Australians don't have the same life that they live. They're in, you know, really high positions of power. And I just don't really care. I mean, one of his good friends was Malcolm Turnbull, who had the power to amend a race discrimination law or try to amend it. And I just don't really care about what they think about him as a man because he had a really bad effect on people who are less powerful than he is and ultimately a hundred times more vulnerable than he is. And particularly, you know, when you look at the ABC controversy, you know, Latoya Rule, who I know pretty well, I mean, her brother died in custody last year. She was He was a victim of these really horrific stereotypes of Aboriginal men when you look at the long history of it. So I just don't really care about what they think about him and whether they think he was a good man or not. Emily, many of those people, such as Annabelle Crabb or Lee Sales, they were really slammed on social media for expressing their regret over his death. Is that fair? Look, I I don't think I'm really in a position to say whether that's fair or not because uh, the depictions in his cartoons don't uh, affect me as a white woman, except some for Julia Gillard, I guess, back in the day. Uh, and I'm sure he was a very charming, personable man, as a lot of people like that are. And, you know, I, I don't know I don't know whether it was fair or not 
for them to express grief over Bill Leake, uh, but their positions as journalists certainly does compromise that. All right, unfortunately, that is all we have time for this week on Fourth Estate. Thanks to my guests, Alex McKinnon. Thanks, Alex. No worries. Emily Smith, thank Thank, you. Thank you. And Amy Maguire, thanks for joining us, Amy. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Fourth Estate podcast, or if you're already a subscriber, leave us a review. It helps other people find the show and helps us to know what you like and you want more of. Stay in touch on Facebook and Twitter. My name's Olivia Rosamond, and you can catch us at the same time next week.